This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. This week, we sat down with our buddy, Mike Fry of Deepwater Subsea. The funny thing is, this was one of our first guests who also used to be a podcaster, and I really just enjoyed where the conversation went. I think there's a lot of great nuggets of wisdom in there. Uh, But really quickly, before we get into the episode, this episode is brought to you by Task. Now, as many of you know, I've worked with numerous EMPs throughout my career, as well as running my own EMP with Colin. I think everyone would agree that the operating game is rather chaotic at times and definitely a logistical nightmare. There are a million things that have to be done on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis, and once you factor in failures and downtime, it creates a never-ending list of things that have to be completed in a certain order. If you listen to episode 54, we dive deep into how Task is a simple yet modern approach to production optimization. Many operators today are using a lot of buzzwords around machine learning and AI and things of the sort, but I've overlooked getting back to the basics of simple organization. What I like about Task is they've taken a unique approach to production optimization by focusing on task management, hence the name, right? By going back to the basics, it allows you to know what everyone's working on, automatically assign task, and enables you to not let things slip through the cracks. So we're super excited to see what the guys at Task are creating. You can check them out at taskinc.com. That's T-A-S-Q-I-N-C.com. Or we've put their contact info in the show notes below if you'd like to reach out to them directly. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode. I don't even know what episode this is. I think it's at 59. Yeah, I think we're at 50-something. I don't know. We're getting up there. Yep. All right, let's roll right into it. Who we got today? We got my buddy, Mike Fry from Deepwater Subsea. How's it going? Doing good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Welcome good. To, welcome to 2020. Yeah. It's crazy to think about 2020. You remember thinking back a few years ago. Actually, we were doing some, some math the other day, trying to build some graphs, and we're like, oh, let's go five years back. And for some reason, I was thinking five years ago was like 2013. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that was actually 15. Yeah. It's insane. I know. I, I saw a thing on... Uh, Facebook the other day that said, what is it, 1990s as close as 2040? Is that correct? Or no, 2050? That's, that's some quick math. Is my math right there? Uh, yeah, you're right. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're 30. Yeah. All right. So let's hop into this. I might, let's not <laughs> show off our math yeah. skills. <laughs> my brain's not. A long pause. Of, <laughs> it's still in the morning, a, guys. My right. brain's not firing on all cylinders yet. So, Mike, I was just talking before we started the podcast. This is actually the first time we've met in person, but we've uh, talked, I mean, for the past three years uh, through uh, LinkedIn. And, Jake, it's actually funny because when I met you, I would messaged Mike at the same time. i just kind of gone on this binge of just messaging a bunch of people on LinkedIn that I wanted to connect Colin with. Colin discovered LinkedIn. He was like, oh, my God, I can reach out to people. There you go. It's like, holy shit, this is cool. I can see everyone's background, what they're doing. And so I just started sending messages to everyone. And um, we'll roll into it a little bit today. But at the time, you were putting out videos and content, and I thought this was really cool. I was like, man, this guy is like – you know, putting out content and Gary V at that time was kind of really starting to take off and I hadn't seen anyone in oil and gas doing it yet. But you Mike had to have been there. one of the, like the first one to put out any content because even when we started going heavy about a year and a half ago, it was like us and like maybe one other person, two other people yeah. that we had seen. So that you're way ahead of your time if you're doing it back then. Cause cool. I mean, that was, we met in 16. So I'm guessing you guys probably linked up in yeah, 16 as well. Like 2016, early yeah. 17 sometime. Yeah, and for me it was, you know, being, an entrepreneur and bootstrapping during the downturn, how do you get your message out? Right. And so there were a lot of people coming and saying, Hey Mike, I'm trying to get a job. Hey, what do I need to do to, you know, improve my resume and just marketing in general, right? How do you reach the masses? Do it once, let everybody see it versus having to answer every email. And you try to, you try to help everybody, Yeah. but it started in, it's faster to shoot a video. I can do it five, 10 minutes, kick it out to the industry versus having to sit and answer each email over and over and over giving the same answer to the same question. Did you get much pushback in the beginning from some of your peers saying like, oh, this is taboo. Like this is not, this is not the platform for that. This is not Facebook. This is not Instagram. Keep it professional. Cause we saw a ton of that in the early days. Uh, mine was different. And it's kind of funny when you mentioned that mine was, who do you think you are to be putting this message out there? Wasn't, this isn't the platform. Really? It's what makes you the person to put it out on the platform. <laughs> and that was always my biggest concern, especially starting podcasting. What back in sixteen was 
yeah, what is the response going to be? Because the industry, as I'm watching LinkedIn, as I'm watching how things are changing over time, and I'm seeing the rest of the world move forward, and people are putting out tons and tons of more just authentic content. Social media has really given everybody a platform, but nobody was really doing it professionally, especially not in oil and gas. And so I was like, oh my God. It's funny, the the comment that you brought up about uh, people asking, like, who are you to be putting out that message? Because it reminds me, that one video I put out in Denver, I had this infamous video. And so I'm in Denver. I just pull out my cell phone, take a three-minute video um, telling, uh, you know, pretty much saying that the oil and gas industry has to evolve and uh, adopt new technology or else it's going to die. And I got something like 600 comments on this video, and I'd say probably 75% of them were talking shit. And some of my favorites, I got them. I still got screenshots of them. It's like this, this <laughs> soft millennial walking around talking on his phone, would have never lasted a day on the rig. And I'm like, dude, you can go to my LinkedIn and see that I spent 10 years on rigs. <laughs> Colin's responses were gold because he has picture-proof video evidence. It's like, oh, well, you wouldn't survive the north south of Alaska. And Colin's like, I already did. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. I mean, the, the thing for me, too, is back in the beginning, the message was never – it wasn't promotional. And so it was if – you, if you see – I called it the daily grind and because that's what yeah. it was. You're in the downturn. People were, unfortunately, committing suicide, and guys are like, look, I'm losing my house. I'm selling my car. I'm like, I need to get a job. And why can't I find a job in this market? And it's like, okay, well – Let's take a look at it. Some of your, some of your CV. And I think it was like daily grind number two or number three. I actually went to Whole Foods and I bought an, two different apples and a pineapple. And I set it on the table. I was like, this is your CV coming across. I have all of these apples that are showing up. You want to be a pineapple. And as much as people are like, oh, that's funny. But how do you stand out against a crowd of, of your peers? Mm-hmm. If all of you have the same experience, all of you come from the same place, you look just like everybody else, just a pool of gray, gray noise. Right. And so the message was always, Hey, we're all grinding just like everybody else's. And you have to take it one day at a time and you have to put in the work and it's not, Hey, you're, you're my boy from five, 10 years ago. And it's like, yeah, I got, a, I got a lot of boys from five, 10 years ago who are also all looking for jobs. And so the, the video started as a, let me try to help this one guy. And then it turned into be positive. It turned into, take a break. Don't stress. The stress is going to be there. Like I tell my team at the office, it'll be there tomorrow when we come back to work, go home. And they're like, Oh no, we gotta get this done. You're not going to get it done tonight. Let's just keep moving forward. And so I'll joke with people and say, we don't do marketing and I don't have brochures. I don't have, and they're like, dude, you market all the time, but I don't market the old conventional way of brochures and flyers and you know i don't cold call i've never made a cold call to say hey how's it going you know it's mike fryer deepwater subsea because i hated that cold call coming my direction and so for me it was put the message out it's a small network of what we do my competitors are it's a small pool so you either know of us or you don't know of us and yeah for me conventional marketing didn't work facebook didn't work i mean we have fifty-seven thousand followers on our Facebook page. But because the algorithms kept changing, I would send out the same message that I sent out a week before and 10 people would see it. And so it was like, okay, hit LinkedIn because that's where everybody was going looking for jobs. That's where all your peers are. So we were shooting past big companies. And it's funny because we we did a post. I'm kind of sidetracking here for a second. I would give away uh, free Yeti coolers. And one year, I think there's like a million views on this this Yeti cooler from three years ago. Every year, here comes people liking it. It's like, oh, they're giving away free Yetis. And I'm like, no, that, was, that was 2016 that free Yeti went out. The Yeti's gone. Yeah, but it's the power of social media and even LinkedIn as a platform as a whole because I always laugh, where do our, our industry go? They go to learn about what's going on in the industry. They go to LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. If they want to go see what their friend from high school is doing, they're going to go to Facebook. Yeah. But if they want to see what oil and gas is doing, that's where everybody goes. I'm so glad you brought this up because I had a conversation with some people over the past few days who are in charge of marketing and sales and stuff for their organizations. I mean, we're really talking about how do you really build a solid strategy? Like not just theoretical, but actually like what are some of the actual steps that you can do? You know, say you're a brand new startup and you're, and you're planning on marketing your business within oil and gas today. And what do you do? And what are some of the best practices? And so I just want to ask you, because I, I feel like I already know what the answer is going to be, but you said you're never putting out flyers, you're not cold calling, all that kind of stuff, but yet everybody already knows who you are. So I'm guessing that your approach has worked probably way better 
had you gone the traditional route, like we see other companies in the space do, going to NAEP, going to the Doug conference, going to that, buying booths, spending $60,000, sending out mailers, doing the cold calling, all the traditional stuff that everybody is now immune to. Do you feel like the, your strategy of what you've done has been just completely transformative for your business? I think the biggest challenge is what's the ROI, right? Yeah. And so for me, the ROI isn't picking up a new customer. The ROI is who's Deepwater Subsea. Yeah. Because no one's called and said, hey, I saw your video. I want you to come do survey workforce. But what they do do is go, now I know who you are. Now I know what you're about. Now I know what your message is. And we'll go to IEDC conferences, industry conferences, and people will be like, hey, man, I love your videos. And it's kind of flattering because I'm like, oh, someone actually looked at them, you know, <laughs> yeah. because I didn't put it out there for how many likes can I get. I put it out there for the, I always used to say, if I get one view and that one view is the one guy that took something away from it, that's what's important to me. Yeah. But when you, when you go to Hobby Airport and somebody walks up to you and it's like, hey, Mike Fry, how are you doing? It's flattering, but you're looking at them like, okay, well, how do you know? Well, they know because of the videos yeah. and they've heard the message and it's like, Hey man, I used to get up every morning and watch your video because it was motivating to me to, to keep the grind to keep the hustle going. So for us, yeah. I mean, if there's five people or five companies in the industry that do this similar thing that you do, all five of them are calling the same person like, Hey, I want your business. I just said, I'm not going to call you. And I'm very protective of the brand. Um, it's funny because I saw one of Colin's videos and, and he was dropping F-bombs and stuff. And I'm like, man, I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> but what's funny is, is I, and I'll actually tell some you know customers I have good relationships with. I'm like, look, I'm not going to call and hump your leg every week. You know who I am. You know what I do. And when you need that service, you'll call me. Yeah. Because if you're not in the market to buy a car, I could be the greatest car salesman in the world. You're not buying a car. Yeah. If you don't need BOP inspectors and training and real-time monitoring, I can call you a thousand times. You're going to tell me no a thousand times. Mm -hmm. But if you keep understanding what the organization does and how we're trying to improve in technology and the things that we're doing, conventional marketing doesn't work today because, like I said, I can put out one video. I have 10,000 followers. The company has 10,000 followers. Colin likes it. Now his followers are seeing it. The, you reach the masses in, in minutes versus picking up the phone mm -hmm. and dialing and dialing and dialing. The gatekeepers disappeared when social media came out. Ultimately, yeah. if you, if somebody was looking to to, to use your services or whatnot, you versus a competitor, you now are, you have a face. So people are doing business with a person, right? And a company that has a face, as opposed to doing business with company X, where nobody has any clue who works there, who is the face of the company. And so that rapport is not quite the same as it is with you who may be putting out content. And most of the time, most content, I think, and especially for B2B stuff, is usually educational and you're guiding people through something. So now you become this trusted advisor because you're dealing with more educated buyers before anybody even picks up the phone in the first place. They're 80 to 90% of the way there by the time they even make that call, send that email, or reach out to any of your sales staff. And so uh, I think that's why whenever people come on the show, I think that's why they're able to get a lot of um, inquiries for their services and their products because now people feel so connected to their stories, right? It's kind of like I watched the the Queen documentary a little while back and then I was listening to Queen for like two months afterwards because I was like, I feel so connected to the story of Freddie Mercury and the ups and downs and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I think that goes a long ways. So we went Super off track, but I think it was all great information, and I think it's super relevant to a lot of things we've been talking about lately. So, like you said, everybody wants to know, like, what is Deepwater Subsea? So, what do you guys actually do? So, good question. So, Deepwater Subsea is a subsea operational excellence company. We do the the BOP verification inspections, uh, the Bessie required inspections. So, we go out to the rigs, we inspect the blowout preventers. Um, we inspect them for compliance to the regulations. So we're not going out as the OEM taking measurements and doing all those things. We're going out to validate that the work is actually being done and, and we document that. On top of that, we also do real-time monitoring. So the new regulations require if you're in the Gulf of Mexico that you have real-time monitoring of your subsea blowout preventers. And so currently um, we're the, the largest real-time monitoring company in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, we're the, uh, somebody else just started, so it's kind of a loose to say it this way, but we were the only company that did both BOP inspections and real-time monitoring. And the benefit to that is 
with the blow up preventers on the ocean floor, we're seeing all the issues that it has, right? So now yeah. when it comes back up on deck, our compliance inspectors are going out and it's like, hey, look, here's all the problems that we saw. Let's make sure they get documented and fixed. And you're actually putting a better product back in the water. Um, on top of that, we do a lot of training, what I'll call unconventional training. Um, when I started the company, I looked at the market and I actually gave my peers credit or my, my competitors credit. I said, what do they do? What do they do good? What could we do better? And there are people who had a stronghold in the training portion of the industry. And I just said, I'm not going to go compete with those guys head to head. I'm going to build courses that no one's ever done before. And the value is Johnny Subsea, as I always say, he can come to that course and actually go back to work with knowledge and information that he can use today versus, you know, how does a blow up preventer work? Well, he knows that his training matrix said you have to take this class. And so he shows up and he goes, oh, okay. But if I said, I'm going to take 20 years of knowledge from working on the rigs, working in the corporate office, working in technical field support, and I'm going to teach you how to be better at your job. Now you can go back immediately and put that to work. And so when, when people ask what is, what is deep water subsea, I always go back to we're a subsea operational excellence company because we focus on the bigger picture. We can do make sure the guys on the rig are doing their job. We can make sure they're compliant and they're documenting and they're doing the work that they're supposed to do. We do the inspections and the real-time monitoring on top of that. So we got a lot to unpack here. Where I want to start is a lot of people that are listening, let's kind of explain um, BOP inspections and the importance of them because even like someone like me, so I've spent time both deep water, uh, Gulf of Mexico, and on land. And like I'm thinking right now, when I roughnecked for a couple of years on land, I don't think we ever had an inspection once on BOPs. It's nowhere near as strict as um, uh, uh, Bessie is um, in Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, I'd think like rig move, we'd just be dragging our fucking BOP across location, you know, by a chain and then, just, you know, stack it up and get it nippled up and be good to run. Back to work. Yeah. So one, let's talk about why this business model even exists because there are obviously some big events, um, Deepwater Horizon. Um, you know, a lot of people are familiar with that story and uh, losing control of that well. And so ever since then, regulations have really tightened up. Um, and how, r remind me, how often do we have to do BOP inspections now offshore? Is it once a month or? No. So every time, so you have to inspect it visually with the ROV every three days. Okay. So visually but, every three days. But every time the blowout preventer comes back to the surface, it has to have, it's mandatory that a third party does a compliance verification inspection. And so back to the, the startup of the business, we started the business in a downturn one of the worst downturns that, that our industry has seen, right? What year was this? Uh, 2015. We turned five next month. So okay. 20, yeah, 2015. So yeah. Yep. What I said is, if I'm going to get into business, I'm going to go where it's mandatory. BOP inspections are mandatory. Real-time monitoring is mandatory. I'm not coming to the market with a nice-to-have. I'm coming to the market with a have-to-have. -have, and we're going to be the best at the have-to-have stuff, which will help me push out the competition because now I'm focused, I'm laser focused on one part of the industry, something that you have to have. And so I'm not coming to pitch you on this, hey, I got this brand new product. I'm coming to pitch you with, I have a better product than what the, the company you're currently using has. And you hire the talent and it goes to work. And so after Macondo, the, the federal regulator, Bessie, MMS, now Bessie, mandated that before a BOP can go back to work, it has to have uh, basically a verification by an independent third party that says that the BOP is fit for service. Without that, the BOP doesn't go back in the water. So on the real-time monitoring, what are you guys actually monitoring um, in real time? So it's it's the coolest thing you've ever seen. Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you get a chance to come out, you got to see it. Um, we should, for sure. So... A blowout preventer um, from one of the OEMs, Cameron, NOV, you know, GE, sends in about 4,000 data points off into the control system. We get that entire feed back to our office. And so everything that happens in the blowout preventer, pressures, functions, alarms, everything, we get that feedback to us. And so what we do is we turn around and visualize all of that information. And so we're calculating, you know, rate of change. We're calculating, you know, how often a function takes place. Is it functioning the way it's supposed to? If it doesn't, then we can go back to the drilling contractor and the operator and say, hey, there's a problem that's taking place. And we're actually seeing things at such a granular level 
that visually you don't know that there's a problem with the blow-up preventer, but we can see in our office that that is starting to, I, don't, I hate using the term leak because everybody gets you know all up in arms, but it's yeah. like that leading indicator that something is starting to happen, we can see it before it actually starts to happen. That's wild. 4,000 data points come out from a BOP. Yeah, so it's That's wild. one of the new systems actually has 36,000 data points. And so it just blows my mind. It's overwhelming if you try to look at, and it's, I understand the why they do it, the OEM does it, but it's like the low level, the low, low level, the, you know, I joke, the super low level. And it's like, <laughs> just give me the low level and the high level. You know, I know what the normal range is. It's going to drop in those ranges while you're functioning it. Yeah. But the OEMs have set up so many targets for these different alarm levels that probably. 15. They, have so, they have so many intervals yeah. instead of just giving a range. That yeah. makes sense. So you probably have 20,000 tags that you could just flush out and, and yeah. not need them. But, Cut um, it down to 10,000. Yeah. <laughs> so 2015, you decide to start Deepwater Subsea. You identify that you want to start a business where there's a need, not something necessarily that's a want or extra bells and whistles. What did you do before that? You know, how did, how did, how are you aware of the opportunity? Um, and just tell us a little bit about your experience before you started the company. Yeah. So, um, coming right out of high school, I joined the Navy, uh, worked on uh, nuclear submarines with torpedoes and cruise missiles and weapons delivery systems. Oh, that's cool. Spent 10 years and, uh, had an opportunity to go work offshore, um, as a subsea trainee and started working on the rigs. And so I worked my way up, uh, worked on three different rigs, uh, here in the Gulf and then down in Brazil. And then I always saw a desire to get into technical field support and, and help the guys. And because one of the things that the Navy taught you is really to learn your systems, to be a subject matter expert, because when you're underwater, if something happens, you, you have a split second to react to it. Yeah. If you're firing a torpedo, you know, and it didn't go off, you need to know exactly what caused it and exactly where to go look. And so I took that philosophy and that, that methodology of how we were trained to oil and gas. And so from there, I got in technical field support, worked my way up to the, you know, the corporate office at two drilling contractors, and then was given an opportunity to go to a startup consulting company, um, different management philosophies, I guess is the nicest way to put it. And then when you think about starting a business, I actually reserved the domain name Deepwater Subsea back in 2001. Oh, I wow. started the industry in 98. Wow. <laughs> um, I lost it because I didn't renew it back. You know, you're like, oh, I got this domain name and just went yeah. away. And so I would periodically check, you know, Deepwater Subsea, nope, Deepwater Subsea, nope. And then one day it was like Deepwater Subsea available. 20 years. I jumped out. I was like, I don't care what it costs. 20 years. I'm going to own this domain. I've been waiting two decades. Yeah. And, uh, I quit, I quit my job on a Friday and, uh, was offshore as deep water subsea on Monday. And it was, I didn't sit back and go like, Oh, what's the market look like? And what's the industry look like? I literally had one of those moments where I was like, I'm done. Um, I got a phone call that says, Hey, look, something, something's going on. And I was like, you know what? I'm done. Called my chief administrative officer, who's my chief administrative officer now. And I said, you got 30 minutes. I'm going to be at the office dropping all my stuff off. You can come with me or you can stay. And I was offshore as Deepwater Subsea on Monday. And uh, she it, was working from the house trying to find yeah. <laughs> banking and insurance and all the rest of it. But it was like, I'm out. Let's go. Yeah. What would your boss say when, when you told him that you're quitting? They, they asked what you're going to do? or Well, they knew, you know, when I walked in, they knew what had happened. And comments were made in a meeting. And it got back to me. And I just said, I'm not playing. And uh, next thing you know, we're direct competitors. And they get bought out. And they go out of business. And it's like, all right. Let's let's have some fun. Yeah, so my story is very similar. You know, I just one day I said, I'm done. And I just uh, you know, turned in my notice. And what what drove you to do that? Have you always known? Have you always been entrepreneurial? Did you always have this intention of going off on your own? Or was it just, you know, some different variables that led to it? A little bit of both. I used to, when I was a drilling contractor, I used to joke with a couple of the other guys. And I'd say, you know, we should just start our own company. You know, it's like would a company pay X for you to save them Y? And they're like, yeah, yeah we should do that. And I'm like, okay, well, who, who are we going to go do this with? And they're like, well, me and Colin and Jacob will go start this company. Yeah, I don't know if I want to go to work with you guys. Like, <laughs> you know, but it was. I don't have a lot of faith in this team. <laughs> the, the idea of would a company hire, you know, because I would watch surveyors and I would watch these other guys come out to the rig and they're, Back then, it was like the guys who were retiring. They're like, just, I'm going to make day rate. I'm going to do my thing. And 
for me, it was always that you're, you're not going to change the industry, but you can influence the way people do their work. And for me, I always saw a different way to attack a situation, even with the real time monitoring, like data will come in. But if you look at it differently, I don't look at it from how do I take a product to the market to deliver it to Shell or BP or Transocean or whoever? I say, how do I take this product to make that guy's job easier, to make the industry safer, to really look at, you know, delivering value back to the customer? A lot of people who are entrepreneurs always go, what's in it for me? You'll make money by providing a good product and service. If you're focused on the money on your own, you'll, you'll never make it. You might make it for a little bit. But then people will see through to who you really are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I get told all the time, like, do you give away too much stuff? And I go, do I really, though? Would you give away time to be the sole provider of a service to a major oil company? Yeah. They can call me 24-7. I don't care because I'm their only customer. I'm their only provider for serving in real time. I mean, this kind of wraps back into the conversation of being able to measure ROI, right? And the, the value that you provide to the market. I mean, it's the same with the content. Like you're providing content, providing value to the market. And I think a lot of people get caught up in it's not black and white, right? They can't. They can't measure um, an ROI, a tangible ROI from that. And it's kind of the same thing here. You know, you're like, Hey, I'm going to provide all this value and we're going to, that's going to keep us in business long-term. It's going to keep our clients happy. If, and you know, instead of coming out with another data product where you're aggregating all this data and then selling it off to shell, I know a lot of entrepreneurs that think that way and that's the way that they would move. But I really like your approach of let's just deliver 10 times the value over deliver and then the, the business will flourish over time. Yeah. And especially, you know, especially with real time monitoring, it's mandatory here. It's not mandatory in other places in the world. So back when the regulation was first coming out, people would say, I have to do it on rig X because there it's in the Gulf and I have to do this. And I go, well, hold on a second. Forget regulations for a moment. Do you know what your rig in West Africa looks like right now? Do you know if it's operating the way it's supposed to? Heck, do you know if your guys are even operating it, you know, at all? Everybody gets focused on the, I have to have this because, and when you show them, look, forget a regulation, what is the value to you as an operations team sitting in the woodlands, knowing that your rig in West Africa is operating the way it's supposed to, when I can see the pressure test, when I can see the pods, are they leaking? It's really trying to re-educate the mind of, you know, I have to do this because it's like, yeah, you do here in the Gulf of Mexico. But if I add that business value back to them and say, okay, I've invested in a SaaS service, which, which costs money, but I give it back to the customer for free. And people are like, well, that's weird that you're, you're buying a service that you don't back charge to the customer. And I go, no, what's weird is that you're only focused on how do I charge the customer? I look at it and go, I'm giving you a tool that you enjoy using that now you go, oh, that's interesting. If I can do it on this rig, can I do it with the other 17 rigs I have worldwide? Yes, you can. Well, let's talk about doing it on all these other rigs as well. And it's like, okay, that $20,000 SaaS product that I, I bought turns into, you know, $2 million worth of real-time monitoring, mm -hmm. all because of you're making an investment in the, in the future of what you're trying to do. Because not every, I said one time, your investment in technology might not give you an ROI at all. It might just make you better at doing your job it's not going to build another product or a service. It's just how do you influence the market with what you have? Mm -hmm. so, so, you, so you started, so you left your job and I'm guessing this was 2015. You said you've been around for five years. Yeah, so you February, guys yep. started in 15 and bootstrap, right? hundred percent bootstrap. No, no debt, no investment, no infusion of capital. It was like literally 401k and let's go to work. <laughs> and, and it's, I when, love it. When I tell people like I'm all in, all in means I'm all in. You know? it. <laughs> it's, There's yeah, something that, uh, about all in that a lot of people preach, have a plan B, have a plan C. But I think in entrepreneurship, by only having a plan A and by going all in on that plan, you really see what you're made of. If you keep telling yourself there's a plan B, there's a plan C, there's always a fallback, are you really pushing your limits? Are you really seeing if you could do everything that you can do? Are you working as hard as you can? Are you working as efficiently as you can? You know, there's a lot of different. I always put money into my 401k. It was my entrepreneurship fund. Like I knew yeah. that when I quit, 
I was cashing that out. I'll take that 20% tax, that 10% penalty. Like I put money away for that. Um, and what's, what's weird is, sorry, just real quick. What's weird on that is as an entrepreneur, I've had people come to me and say, what's your exit strategy? And I'm like, what? I, I have 28 people that work for me. Like I'm not, I'm not leaving these 28 people high and dry. Cause I was like, woo, hit that number. I'm out of here guys. Good luck to you. It's like, for me, it's, it's, provide a service, provide a service, provide a service, be the best at doing it. It's not, it's different because you're not building a, you know, a tech product, mm -hmm. but it's provide that service back to the industry, be the best, hire the best people. The exit will come when you're ready to have it happen. But if you sit down in the beginning and go five years and I'm out, you'll, you'll never make it because your greed will overpower you to say, I got to, I'm not never investing anything because that's going to be my exit you have to constantly reinfuse that capital. And we talked before, I think it's amazing what you guys do with all this stuff. I did all that stuff by myself because I went, okay, I did a video one time. I said, you'd be surprised what you can learn for $29.99 in 30 days. And people are like, what are you talking about? I said, go to Amazon, buy a book, download a free 30 day trial of the software and learn Microsoft project mm -hmm. because that's where the industry is going for project planning. After 30 days, just don't renew it. So I've bought a book, I've taught myself YouTube, got all the rest of it. And now I know how to do Microsoft project versus walking into a job and they go, have you ever done project before? And you're like, what, what is project next? You know, it's like invest in yourself, invest in time. And it comes down to being resourceful, right? Yeah. You, resourcefulness is like the number one thing that we look for um, when bringing anybody on that we're going to work with at all. Uh, do you have more information at your fingertips than you've ever had in the history of existence? educate yourself whatever you want to learn like there's no reason you don't have to go to college there's online courses there's free courses there's blog posts there's youtube videos like colin's kids are like building computers and stuff and they're like eight years old based on what they see on youtube i had a so one of the guys that just joined our team is big into expert systems and artificial intelligence and machine learning yeah and we were sitting down one day and he's talking about python and i'm like i know what python is i'm mm -hmm. familiar with it and then I went online and watched a video and I was like, what? Like, oh no, hold on a second. <laughs> and when you, when you open your eyes to technology, well now my desk is full of machine learning and pandas and all this other stuff. <laughs> and the team is like, what do you do with all these books? And I was like, if I just find one little piece that falls into what we're looking for, that $30 book, you know, it, but it's the time, especially as a business owner, if you understand the next challenge, right? If you understand how to make a podcast, how to do video editing, that day that the guy goes, I can't do this. You're like, I got it, you know? Mm -hmm. But when you rely so much on others, you know, you talk offline about how do you, how do you reserve costs and how do you really like bootstrap hard? Mm -hmm. A fault of mine has been bootstrapping too hard instead of going, Oh, okay, well I'm going to hire, I'm going to outsource making a 3d model. My mindset was, I'll just download AutoCAD and I'll figure this out, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then people go, dude, you have no time. And it's like, okay, so I outsource and two days later, there's the model, right? So there's, it also backfires on you at times yeah, too. I think Absolutely. it depends on how, like, how quickly do you need something? If it's, a, if it's, you're looking for a year from now for me, for example, if I was like, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm pretty much putting myself through uh, UI, UX school. And so I'm trying to learn everything there is to, what are the best practices for building a beautiful software product? And it's something that's kind of come more naturally, but I have really no formal training at all. And so if I needed something by tomorrow or by next week, I'm outsourcing or I'm delegating. Yeah. If I need it by, I'm planning for the next year, I'm really just educating myself so that I can be a better leader with the team that we have moving forward, right? One thing I really, kind of changing the topic real quick, one thing I really appreciated about Mike when he came in here is since he's done content, done podcast, video, he walked in and appreciated everything that we've done with, you know, the multi-camera angles. And even though like our setup here in the old studio is not impressive at all, just how much work goes into the back end. And so I appreciate what you did back in the day putting out content because I know it sucks. Like it sucks, you know, having to record and then upload to the computer and then edit and then publish. I mean, you're talking about a long process, you know, to make that three minute video can take, you know, hour, hour and a half, however long it takes you to chop it up and edit it and export. So, you know, I think, 
you talk about outsourcing and bootstrapping and it's always a fine balance right because there are those stages where you don't have resources to outsource so you have to do everything yourself but then maybe you start getting to that threshold to where hey maybe i could outsource this little part and i can start focusing on growth opportunities um a little more and you know we're talking about our podcast and really i think the only thing that if jake and i were editing it for a year and a half i don't think we'd be able to stick with it and so from right from the get-go we're like hey we're gonna we're gonna hire an editor and you know jake and i have invested a lot of money into this over the last year and a half it's cost us a lot of money but i just don't think that we would continue if we had that burden of doing all the editing all the time well if i can kind of touch on that real quick because it's true when you when you do it yourself and and we put out, I put out a hundred videos of the daily grind. I mean, when I, the bad thing was there was never an end, but when I hit a hundred, I was down in Brazil. It's, it's a daily grind to put out. The it was daily a daily grind. grind right? <laughs> exactly. And so when I did the hundred, then I started, you know, I talked about the peers and stuff and guys would be like, Oh, you know, I saw your video. Like, haha. You know, it's like that mental grind started happening of, uh, you know, how are my peers starting to look at this where before it was the guy who was looking for a job and now the industry is starting to come back and you had the the trash talking and you had the, you know, the negativity coming back your way. And I never got into it because I was like, ah, I didn't make this video for you. Yep. But it, it started getting to the point where I started overthinking the content versus yeah. like I mentioned before, I would be driving to work and be like, today I'm going to talk about this, walk in, set it up, bang it out, throw it out. Then it started turning into almost a job. You know, I was like, all right, I have to do a video today. And I'm like, I have no idea what I haven't already talked about in a hundred other episodes that I want to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And I found myself stop. I would stop watching other people's content because I was like, they're just regurgitating the same message over again. And then it started getting to buy my book, go do this, you know? And I was like, eh. I yeah. started tuning it out. Yeah. So then I stopped. And then it was like, then when you throw a new one out, you, you we would never get hundreds and thousands of views. It's just the one. And it was, hey, man, I really like that. That really helped me today get through the moment I was having. Mm-hmm. Then you sit back and you're like, all right, it was all worth it. You have to measure the depth. Yeah. No, not not the width. You know, like you said, you're not getting millions of views, but you get that one. That's what makes it all worth it, right? And so, you know, you talked about your time down in Brazil and talking about the daily grind and talking about, you know, kind of lifting people's spirits and the downturn in your team and telling everyone to push forward. And something you told me before the podcast started was you're a grappler wrestling and jujitsu and just that kind of daily grind mentality is very much a wrestling mentality. So I see that in you when you talk about the type of content that you put out and kind of your attitude and the way that you approach things. So, um, you know, that's, that's one thing that uh, this is my plug for grappling. If you can't tell, like, if you want to start Brazilian, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and wrestling, hit me up. <laughs> so it's a great, it's, I tell you what, it's the greatest sport in the world because it's funny. I had a competitor one day say, hey, look, you know, we're, if you're going to roll out this into this part of the market, we're going to run you over. And my answer to him was, you know what's funny about that? I said, I grew up in combat sports. And the beauty of combat sports is you and I walked on the mat. And if you beat me, I shook your hand. And I went back and figured out why I lost. But if I beat you then I get to sit and smile for a little bit, but there was no excuses. Like my wrestling coach used to tell me he beat you and there's always somebody out there working harder to try to beat you. And I'd say it all the time. One of the, one of my former employees who um, went to be a youth pastor. And so I always joke when people say it was a former employee, we've only, we haven't had people quit, but it's kind of hard when he comes in and says, I'm going to be a youth pastor. And you're like, well, I guess, you know, God's kind of a, more powerful source than you know business owners, <laughs> but he would always make the comment. He says, you know, the problem with your competition is if they're showing up with their sunglasses on, it's too late because you've already been here for four hours and that grind of like, you're not going to outwork me. And as soon as I take my foot off the gas, I know there's other organizations that have 20, 30, 50 people that could just blow right past us, which is where being agile comes in and being able to move very quickly. But yeah, wrestling's the greatest yeah, sport. Yeah, there's, um, man, I, I feel bad because I can't remember the wrestler's name off the top of my head, but a great wrestler. And I can't remember if he's at the Olympics or some other really high-level tournament, and he came in second place. He lost. And his dad um, put his arm around him and said, you got what you deserved. And insinuating that you didn't work as hard yeah. as you could have. 
And um, I think that you always have to, you know, I talk about this on Twitter. You've probably seen some of my tweets sometimes, but Twitter's going through this anti-hustle movement and very like, you know, and they really aim it at like Gary Vee and Elon Musk and some of the early um, Silicon Valley founders that say, hey, you got to grind, 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 grind. And I feel like you can't rely on Twitter as an overall observation of the population because it's just a subset. That's and right. It's usually a vocal subset, but they're fucking soft. You only hear the ones that are the loudest. Yeah, they're soft. Mm-hmm. And it makes it, in my opinion, easy for the people that are hard nosed and have that mindset of just keep pushing forward and, you know, going through the daily grind day in and day out. I feel like you can find success just by outworking everyone around you. I was having the conversation with somebody last night about just anxiety. And I think anxiety itself gets a bad rap because if I didn't have anxiety, I don't think I would work near as damn hard as I do because that anxiety keeps me up at night saying, how can we do better? How can we do more? How can I be more efficient? Somebody's going to knock us off. Everything that we have today is going to be gone tomorrow. Having gone from feeling like I was on top to on bottom multiple times and saying, I never want to be there again. And I will do everything in my power to outwork everybody, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's, you should have, if you don't have some sort of anxiety as an entrepreneur, you really need to check yourself because you're really not pushing your limits. You are not trying hard enough. You're not out of your comfort zone. There's a book champion mindset that talks about that like you know this i mean you know before a match you start getting the butterflies and you you know start having a little bit of self-doubt or whatever it might be and it talks about um fuck i'm gonna butcher this quote but (laughs) something about you know controlling the butterflies and using them to your advantage and i feel like that's the same for entrepreneurs i mean you get up especially when you're bootstrapped especially when you're bootstrapped and this is where being overcapitalized can hurt you because you don't have that sense of urgency yeah but when you're bootstrapped, I mean, every day can be life and death of the company, right? And so you have that that yeah. anxiety that comes from, and it's like, hey, man, I got to push, push, push. This is why Mike's up at 4.30 in the morning. He says you can go watch his old videos, look at the clock. It's 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning because, I mean, you're doing what you have to do, right? Well, and you know, one of my employees said this the other day, and, and I always talk about the Deepwater Subsea family, right? And people are like, oh, it's, it's your company. But you, you won't hear me say, damn it, I'm the owner it's you know this is the team this is the family this is this and people say you know dude you need to take a break and it's like you've been going five years nonstop, and it's like yeah i do and i have but i feel that i have 27 28 mortgages sitting on my shoulders and as soon as i take my foot off the gas i'm gonna look over and everybody's gonna go mike took his foot off the gas we can take our foot off the gas and one of one of our team members the other day was talking to another team member and they said you know what my livelihood depends on your hustle. And it was, and I'm not talking like go work like Mike does. It was, you need to be focused on what happens because my mortgage relies on you, just like Mike's mortgage and such and such's mortgage and everybody else's. But the team look at it that way. They're like, we're all part of this together. If you're at a BP, a Shell, a Transocean, and you want to take a day off and screw off, you want to do 20% of your job and just sit and surf, you know, the, the internet, you, you can do it. And you'll still get a paycheck and you'll still be that person that everybody goes, ah, we know he doesn't produce. But when you're when you're an entrepreneur, you don't have that luxury of going, ah, we can coast for a while. Yeah. Because somebody else is trying to knock you off. And mm-hmm. when you're the new startup in the industry, you're competing against the establishment, companies that have been around 10, 15, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, some of these bigger ones. And you're trying to come into the market and the first thing people tell you is, how long have you guys been in business? Six months. No, we don't want to go to the dance with a new one. And it's like, no, but I've been in the industry 20 years. But your company's only been around six months. And so we have to take that to management to say, we're going to get rid of the establishment to go with these new guys. Mm. And so the grind and the hustle is constantly there to prove yourself each and every day. But as I tell the team, you send the email to the wrong person and you have the wrong message they disappear that fast. And when they disappear, 
that one customer could be a fifth of the revenue for the entire company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need to think about who you're messaging and who you're talking to and, and all the rest of that stuff. I think we're on the verge of something really, really great in this conversation. And I want to unpack it. I know usually we cut it at 45 minutes, but I wanted to just dive a little bit deeper in here because it's something that we've talked a lot about privately, but we've never really addressed it on the mic. We always address it when we're like driving back and forth to something. And it's now that, so I became a father, what, almost two years ago. Right. So prior to that, I don't think I had taken a single vacation in five years. Um, the only actual today I've only actual vacation that I would consider was my honeymoon. And that was seven years ago. Um, everything else was kind of just like, it's a family get together. It's a Christmas, but it's not really a vacation. It's getting your family together. Right. I still have a ton of guilt when I go up to the ranch on the weekends for taking the weekends off. Right. But now as a father, and, and Colin's had, you know, he has three kids. And so a lot of time, whenever I'm approaching I'm a new I'm challenge, a he's a seasoned dad. So I come to him and I'm like, hey, how, how, are, how do you think about this, right? So now I think about when I go home, I don't open my laptop anymore, which is something that I used to do. It used to, it was 100% 24-7. I was working around the clock. I was taking calls to 11 o'clock at night. I was waking up early. I was completely doing everything that I could within, I was working as hard as I possibly could, right? But then there comes that time of, what are you doing all the work for? And can I be even more efficient during the work day? It's not to say that I don't do work at all. That's the important part of this conversation is how can you improve efficiency during your the time that you are working instead of just being busy? Because I think yeah. what a lot of people need to understand the difference between is productivity and being busy. And it's easy, you know, I, I think that we've seen this, you know, like kind of the Gary, like I love Gary Vee, love what he's doing, but he's encouraged people just to like, hey, nonstop, 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 nonstop. And, but what are you actually doing? And so I've had this conversation with Jake many times, but it's like, hey, I want to be from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. Whenever I leave the office, I want to be extremely productive in those hours. And then I want to go spend an hour or two hours with my kids before That's before right. they go to bed and be very disciplined in my time and what I'm doing within those time slots. So you get if you get in that 24-hour, and it happens to me all the time, I do it. But I feel like you can burn out at, at times. So you got to manage that balance as well. I'm sure you have very similar, um, you know, 24-hour, you know, always oh, it's, always it's, thinking about the business. I it's, mean, it's constant. I mean, and now I just thinking about it, you know, John Wooden had a great quote was, um, are you being active or are you being productive? You know, kids in the playground are, are being active, maybe not very productive, but it's understanding when you go in for that 12 hour slot, am I being productive or am I just busy doing stuff? Right. And so there's times at the office I'll, I'll go in, I'll say, look guys, I'm shutting the door. And even though there's a glass, you know, glass, you know, window and stuff, but it's like, Mike, we can see you. Yeah. It's like, I put my headphones on and it's like, I'm not being disrespectful. I need this hour to get this done. And sometimes I go to open the door and my chief administrative officer is like, don't, don't, don't go in there right now because it's like, I have to get this done. But that's the biggest challenge, right? I mean, when you're an entrepreneur, it's like, and, and you're coming out with new products and new services and, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence and all this stuff, you're constantly grinding and, and thinking about like, all right, if I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. And you find yourself at times consumed with what's next. Right. And then my, my baby's 23. It, you turn around, you're like, she's 23. Like, where did all that time go? I would not and, guess that you have a 23 year old. Yeah, I have a 28 year old. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but it's it's a downfall I think of entrepreneurs is and and if you look at Gary Vee, always on the go, always running and gunning. But one thing he says is my family time is my family time. And as an outsider, you go, when is that? You know, but it's too easy to get consumed in the business. And I, I feel the exact same way that, that you mentioned Jacob was on the weekends. I would go to the office and, and just check in with the guys. It's like, how's everything going? What's going on? And the last couple of weekends, it's like, I'm not going to go to the office. And I feel like a, like I'm going through withdrawals to like, I've even made the comment to, to one of the team members. I said, I feel like I'm neglecting the team by not going to the office because it's almost like, well, Mike didn't come in. Like, I wonder what's the matter. 
nothing's the matter. Mike's just like, he's detoxing or he's <laughs> sleeping because it is 24 seven, you know, yeah, and it's, yeah. you, uh, I got an hour and a half sleep last night cause I was working on stuff and it's like the end of the Betsy regulations, um, four o'clock rolled around. I'm like, do I just stay up? Or do I try to crash for a brief period? And so I crash for an hour well, and a half. You and especially have it bad because it literally is 24-7 for you. I mean, real-time monitoring of BOP yep. operations, that's 24-7 around yep. the clock. So, I mean, even when, you know, you're in bed, you're... Oh, the you phone know. rings all the time. Yeah. And, and the customers will call me at 5.30 in the morning. They're like, oh, I know you're at the office. Well, it's a good thing you know my, my schedule because... <laughs> but they do. They know that I'm already up and I'm already at the office. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, um, you know, in this business, I think that, you know, especially if you're on the oil field services side or any type of service type business in oil and gas, I mean, this industry is 24-7. And so I think that founders and uh, uh, entrepreneurs have it even worse in this industry because we're running and gunning all that's the right. time. And if you don't pick up that phone at 530, you know, what what's that going to look like to, to the customer that's depending on you for real-time monitoring, you know? Yeah. So that's, um, you know, I've got a lot of respect for you and that. Um, so I know you guys are getting, cause... getting to the end of time. I want to give you a nugget that I've been hanging on to <laughs> for all of your listeners. Are What's you the nugget? What do we got here? Today's marketing is done 100% backwards. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Conventional wisdom in the old oil and gas industry was go for the top dog. I need to get that manager. I need to get that director. I need to get the guy. I need to get the decision maker first. The reason YouTube, the reason LinkedIn, I'm not looking at the top guy. I'm looking at the bottom guy that's going to feed the top guy with, hey, I saw this thing. Hey, we should bring this guy in. Hey, there's a training course that we should go to. If I'm pounding that top director all the time or that top manager, it's one-on-one. But if I hit 150 of his guys, now he's getting deep water subsidy, deep water subsidy. It's coming from all directions. Get 150 champions inside preaching your gospel yep. for you. It makes it so much easier. Yeah, I'd but, agree 100%. And, and that I think gets missed a lot, especially with startups, is they're like, who is the decision maker? No, no. Who's the person that's going to use your product? Who's the guy that's going to come to your class? They're going to go to their boss and say, there's a training course I want to take. If I go to the director of training for a company, they're going to be like, nah, you know, but if all the guys or guys on the rig are coming from all different directions, we are on training matrices for, for drilling contractors because the guys in the field said, we want to take this class. They took the class, said it's one of the best classes they've ever taken, went back to the company and they said, well, let's just put on the matrix for everybody. Yeah. That's the easiest way to go about it because now it's a constant feeder versus trying to attack the top. It's very yep. grassroots. So, yep. Well, Mike, appreciate you coming on the show, man. If people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? You're on LinkedIn. What else? Websites, deepwatersubsea.com. Deepwatersubsea.com. 20 years in the making to, to get right. that URL. So um, I'm sure you guys have contact form on there where they yeah. can get a hold yep. of you. Cool. Awesome. Well, this is a great conversation. Mike, appreciate you coming on, I enjoyed man. it. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Mike. Uh, if you could take two seconds, uh, like I mentioned in the last podcast, we had this new little link down in the show notes. It's uh, a link that says rate this podcast forward slash digital wildcatters. allows you to leave a rating and review, which helps us uh, keep doing what we're doing. Um, feel free to forward it to all of your peers. Just go to go to send all for the whole company. Send it to all 2,000 people that work there. Uh, we would much appreciate it. And we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Cut, 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 cut.